0: Let's uh,
1: take a look at our study tonight. Actually, the verses at the bottom of this slide are wrong. Um, it's We're going to do 14, uh, 14 through 20. So the first three verses are part of the first division, which I call the grain reaper. And then we've got the grapes of divine wrath is going to be the last section tonight. And we're looking at two different harvests that are going to take place in the second part of the tribulation. Uh, some Uh, Some do not see two harvests here. Um, Some think that it's a reiteration of one harvest. uh, But I'll point out some reasons as we go along why I think this is two distinct harvests. But uh, let me read the passage here for us. Verse 14, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So this verse comes immediately after those three angels that came preaching uh, the eternal gospel, the doom of Babylon, and the doom of the worshipers of the beast. And then it said that uh, blessed are all those who die in Christ. Uh, And we saw that it is much better to die in Christ during the tribulation than even to continue to live but especially to die not in Christ or to continue without Christ through the tribulation. Uh, but here we come to a vision now of the son of man coming in the clouds, but this is not his return to the earth yet. This is not chapter 19 where we see him writing uh, to earth. Uh, this is him coming for a harvest in the clouds and it will uh dovetail in with his return, but this is a proleptic view. Looking forward towards the end of the tribulation, uh, all of chapter 14 kind of covers the from the midpoint to the end of the tribulation, and this is getting towards the final judgment of the end. So there's four things I want to pull out of this verse. Uh, we want to look at who is the Son of Man, uh, what are these, what is the significance of these white clouds that he is appearing in? What about his golden crown, and why is he wielding a sharp sickle? So first, the Son of Man. Uh, This was Jesus' favorite name for himself in the Gospels. The first time that he used it was in speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, uh, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So this is in stark contrast, his first coming from his second coming. In his second coming, the entire earth will be his. The entire earth will be his domain. There will be no lack of places where he is. But in his first coming, uh, he came in humility. He came for a different purpose than in his second coming, Uh, But it is interesting and unique here that he calls himself the Son of Man. This is an Old Testament term used to prophesy of the coming Messiah. And we see it used almost everywhere else uh, in tandem with his coming judgment. So I actually uh, chose most of our verses tonight in some area reference him as the Son of Man. Uh, It's something like uh, 75 to 80% of the verses that I use tonight use this term, Son of Man. So it is a very significant theme throughout scripture. In John 5, 26 to 27, we see Son of Man uh, in conjunction with his judgment. He says, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So this, uh, in its larger context, is supposed to draw a contrast. Just as Jesus Christ was given authority over life, so he was given authority over death, and he executes judgment, dividing between those two destinies, life or death. Those who have life in him are not judged. Those who do not have life through him are judged, and it's his ministry as the Son of Man where he comes in that
2: judgment. In Mark
1: 14, 62, Uh, We see him returning in glory. Uh, But as the Son of Man, he will return. But he also um, today sits in power at the right hand of God. So in Mark 14, 62, we read, And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this is a verse also that uh, gives us some evidence that. Jesus Christ did not take on flesh for a time and then put off flesh and return to being a spirit, but rather when he put on flesh, uh, he put on flesh for all of eternity. He became our kinsman redeemer, and at the moment he sits in power at the right hand of God, um, operating as a priest, but when he comes, he will come in power as well. Um, and he will begin to rule as king. So we see him in two different functions here,
2: but in both we see him as the son of man.
1: All right, you'll notice in the last verse as well that he came in white clouds. This is also a very consistent theme that will point towards him being uh, the Messiah that Israel did not recognize, but... At a later time in future at the end of the tribulation they will recognize him as their messiah they will connect um, all the dots and they will not any longer be in unbelief but they will be in the land in belief and this prophecy goes all the way back to daniel seven thirteen, and it says i kept looking in the night visions that's daniel receiving a vision um, in fact this was uh, part of his first prophecy uh Or his first prophecy in the book of Daniel from chapter 7 to 12 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So we see these when he comes in the clouds. Uh, He is coming to receive for himself dominion. And that was uh, a mandate for Adam on this earth that Adam failed uh, to do. He failed to have dominion over this earth. And instead, the earth had dominion over him when an animal, uh, when he listens to an animal's words over God's and in doing so listens to uh, a different spirit besides God. Putting himself in subjection to Satan rather than in subjection to God, but we see Christ putting himself in subjection to God rather than any other. Uh, And so he is given dominion and he will exercise it properly. He is the last Adam uh, and he will come having dominion, receiving glory, and a kingdom from the Father. He is not currently ruling in the kingdom that will be his during the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Uh, he does rule over the church, uh, but the church is not a nation. The church uh, comes from all the nations of the world. Uh, at the time of the messianic kingdom, he will rule over a nation, and that nation will rule over the world. So these uh, these clouds of heaven that he comes in is uh, representative of the glory of God, especially the glory of his uh, presence with mankind. We see in Exodus 24 uh, that when God made the promise to dwell among his nation, um, he did so from a cloud of glory. Uh, It says the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. So we have here Moses correlating this cloud and the glory of the Lord. And we see that the Shekinah glory, uh, where it is uh, introduced throughout Scripture, um, is always indicative of God being present with man. In fact, uh, whenever the voice of God is audible to mankind in Scripture, the presence of the Lord is also visible. So here we have the Lord speaking from Mount Sinai. His voice is audible. If you had a tape recorder, you could have recorded the voice of God. Tape recorders didn't exist back then, but that's the principle here is this voice was audible so that it could have been recorded. Uh, The presence of God was also visible so that it could have been recorded. It was visible to the naked eye, and it was audible to the naked ear. The Lord was present with Moses on Mount Sinai. And in Matthew 17, 5, uh, we see that the Lord was also uh, transfigured while among this bright cloud, uh, and three of his disciples got to witness this. Now, this is very significant because This came on the heels of a promise that the Lord made to his disciples just a few verses earlier. I think we've discussed this probably a few months ago, but in Matthew 16, 28, he promises his disciples saying, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now that's exactly the phrasing that we have here in Revelation 14. 14. And it's exactly the image we have here. Now, they don't see the actual event before they die, but they see the glory of the Lord coming with the power of his kingdom in the brightness of this cloud. Uh, This prophecy of the Lord in Matthew 16, 28 is fulfilled only six days later on Mount Hermon when three disciples, Peter, James, and John, go up the mountain with him and he's transfigured before them. Now, this is the second time we hear the audible voice of God uh, from uh, and at the same time we witness the visible spirit. So we see while he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then he adds to that. Listen to him. Um, so we have the presence of the spirit in visible form we have the audible voice of god uh, coming out of heaven and we have the son of man uh, glorified in the presence of the lord and this was something that confirmed his messiahship this was something that confirmed to these three disciples that he is indeed the messiah that israel has been waiting for <clears throat> Okay, it also says that he is wearing a golden crown on his head. Uh, As you uh, probably remember from doing uh, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are two different kinds of crowns. One is a Stephanos and the other is a Diadema. Uh, We get the English word diadem from that second one. A Stephanos is uh, what they would give to victors in the Olympics they would give them a wreath, they would give them a prize. Uh, this marked their accomplishment. The winner would re- receive a Stephanos for their victory. A diadema on the other hand has nothing to do with victory. It has all to do with royalty. So one who wears a diadem is in some uh, capacity in authority over uh, those in their domain. So this is a royal headband, a crown, Especially a crown of authority. Well, the crown that Jesus comes wearing here is still the crown of victory. It's the Stephanos, it's not yet the diadema. This is what makes it different uh, from Revelation 19 uh, when we see him returning uh, for the final consummation of the tribulation. It says, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself this uh this crown that he comes wearing during the harvest is different than the crown he comes wearing uh when he comes to um, to conquer the armies at Armageddon in matthew twenty seven twenty nine We see him wearing a different Stephanos. Here it's one of thorns. This is one of victory over death. It says, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This crown was a crown of thorns. Uh, Just like in the Olympics, they wear a crown of laurel leaves uh, if they win. Now this one indicates the curse. Um, remember uh, back in uh, Genesis three nineteen, part of the curse is that thorns and thistles will grow from the ground instead of uh, regular crops. And uh, scientists have noted that thorns and thistles actually are mutated leaves that the leaves don't grow right, and that's what causes thorns. Uh, so there's possibly a connection there, uh, that the corruption of the world through sin has caused thorns and thistles to grow. Um, and so Jesus Christ here is crowned with this crown of thorns, crowned with the curse itself, um, and he will have victory over it. In fact, in first Corinthians 15, uh, the great resurrection chapter, uh, the whole thing is, just a beautiful picture of the resurrection promised to all those um, who have believed in Jesus Christ. But in verses 54 and 55, uh, he reaches the climax, Paul reaches the climax of his argument here, and he says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory." O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Christ is the victor over death. Um, he has conquered death, and that was indicated by his crown of thorns, uh, or it was uh, foreshadowed by his crown of thorns. But here he's come, not wearing a crown of thorns, but a golden crown. Uh, this is a crown where he, as the king, uh, will come and exercise victory over this world, that has been usurped by Satan. Once he has completed this victory, he will have a diadem, a crown of gold, that is no longer a Stephanos,
2: but a diadem.
1: So we see that pictured here in Revelation 19. On his head will be uh, many diadems. And this many diadems, it doesn't tell us how many. Um, It should probably just indicate to us total authority, or exceeding authority. Uh, his royalty is greater than all others. Everyone else wears a single crown as a king. Uh, Satan comes wearing seven diadems, but the Lord comes wearing many diadems. The idea is that we can't even number them. If Satans are numbered at seven, uh, many diadems are innumerable for us. Uh, he has a name written on him which no one knows and his cl- uh, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this is also important, this robe dipped in blood that we see in Revelation 19. Uh, it gets stained with blood here in chapter 14. Um, so we see that this harvest, this uh, pressing of the grapes and the grain uh, harvest will have been completed already at the time that he returns um, in Revelation 19
2: this is also from Revelation
1: 19, Um, but as we continue in this, uh, oh no, this is from Revelation 1, when we look back at Revelation 1, uh, we see a similar uh, set of descriptions, but the descriptions are different. Uh, So we read that uh, in the middle of the lampstands, John, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, Uh, No mention of being stained with blood uh, or of having any stain, but it also doesn't necessarily indicate that it is pure, but we can assume it was a pure robe uh, because his vision of Christ is his vision of Christ as he is today, uh, operating as a priest over the church. And that we know by this it says, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Uh, Now, if you remember back, Again, all the way to January, this golden sash around his chest was the sash, much like uh, the priests wore in the temple. However, theirs were uh, not girded around their chest, but girded around their waist. Uh, Having a sash around his chest also indicates sort of uh, authority, like a king would wear his sash. His hair was white as wool. uh, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, notice in mentioning his head, he does not mention
2: here that a crown is worn by Christ.
1: And moving on to verse fifteen, his feet were like burnished bronze, when it when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Uh, when we get a couple verses forward in our chapter chapter fourteen, we'll see that. Uh, the wine press of the Lord is, or of the Lord's wrath is pressed, and this was done by stamping it with your feet. So we see that the Lord's feet are prepared for judgment. Um, in fact, they are burnished bronze, uh, flaming as if uh, they have just come out of a furnace. And in his right hand, uh, during the church age, there have been the seven stars that he later uh, tells us are the Um, seven churches when we get to chapter 14 we no longer see the seven churches in his hand we see a sharp sickle um, in his hand and now um, his out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword Uh, in chapter 14 this two-edged sword is not coming out of his mouth but he's actually wielding it in his hand as a sickle when we get to Revelation 19, however, we will see that this sword returns to his mouth, but it's a different kind of sword, and we'll handle that when we get to chapter 19. So at this point, he is wielding a sharp sickle now. He's coming for victory. He's coming in the glory of God with the idea behind it of the kingdom is quick on his heels. So he has returned for the purpose of judgment. In Matthew 24, 27 to twenty-eight, this is part of the Olivet Discourse when his disciples asked him what would be the signs of the end of the of the end of days, um, and he responds to them uh, with this uh, basically microcosm of the Book of Revelation, but not for uh, a church audience or a Jewish audience. So it's written with uh, Jewish aspects in mind not church aspects so he skips over the church age and discusses with his disciples um, just what will be uh, what will bring about the end of days in regards to the Jews but he says here for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west so will the coming of the son of man be wherever the corpse is there the vultures will gather but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, so as we continue again through tonight when we see uh, verses 19 and 20 in chapter 14, we'll see that this is likely the event that Christ has in mind uh, when he talks about his coming. That these corpses that will be uh, all over the land that the vultures will come to eat um, are indicative of the time of Armageddon <clears throat> uh, his return will be in uh, his return will be for the purpose of judgment uh, matthew twenty four thirty and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So we see again, uh, his name for himself is the son of man. When he returns uh, to receive the kingdom, he comes bringing his glory. He does not come to the earth and receive a kingdom from the church. That is a very common uh, teaching, but the church will not create the kingdom. Um, He will bring the kingdom with him when he returns to the earth. He will come um, bring in glory of his own. He will not receive any glory from this earth. Um, in fact, he will come to destroy this earth, which has uh,
2: which has not recognized his glory. So here in uh John
1: 5.22, oops, I accidentally deleted a different one. Uh, in John 5.22, we see a second Advent earlier on. Uh, actually later on uh in john 12 i can't remember the exact verse he says that he did not come to judge the world uh, but that the world through him might be saved but here in john 5 we see that the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son now this is one that uh, caught my interest back in high school one of my friends asked our bible teacher If that was a con uh, contradiction, Bible teacher didn't have an answer for him. So I always held on to that as uh uh oh, stay away from those verses; those might be a contradiction. Uh, well, it actually has a really simple, very easy uh, explanation, and if you read the context of these two verses, that explanation is right there in the text. Uh, Jesus did not come to this earth in order to judge it in his first advent. However, judgment has been reserved for him and for him alone in the second advent. So he has two advents to this earth and two purposes. In the first one, he comes as a lamb to suffer and to die, to bring all men to him, whoever would believe in him uh, might have life eternal in him. But in his second advent, he comes not in relation to sin, but he comes for judgment. He comes to put away. Uh, all sin and all evil uh, in its final state Uh, so this has to do with his second advent judgment has been reserved for him all right verse 15 and 16 then another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Notice here, the one who sat on the cloud did not get off the cloud. Christ does not set foot on this earth until he returns at the end of the tribulation period. This is not yet the end of the tribulation period, although it is the beginning of the end of the end of the end. (laughs) So he is about to step foot on this earth, uh, but he is still not yet on this earth. All right, four more things to pull out of these two verses. Uh, What is meant here by another angel? We've seen this again and again and again. Um, So we want to understand what sequence this angel is part of. Uh, What is this temple that is in heaven that this angel comes out of? Uh, Why does this angel have the right to command the son of man to do anything? And what exactly is right for the harvest? So first here quickly, just uh, placing this angel in its sequence. Uh, The son of man mentioned in 1414 is not an angel. He is not part of this angelic sequence, but he comes right in the middle of it. Uh, In our last study, we saw three different angels. Uh, The angel that came with the eternal gospel, the angel that came to proclaim the doom over Babylon, and the angel who came to uh, declare doom for all those who worship the beast and take his mark. Uh, So those three angels were all uh, called another angel and said another angel with the eternal gospel, another angel, a second one, uh, declared doom over Babylon. And it skips the son of man, does not indicate that he is another angel. And remember, this is Alos Angelos, another of the same kind. The Son of Man is not another of the same kind. He is uh he far exceeds these angels, the angels being creatures, the son of man being the creator, that impassable uh, division. Uh, what was created cannot be the creator. Uh so here, when we get to the angel in 1415, and it says another angel. It's not referring back to the son of man saying that they're both angels. It's referring back to this angel that was called an angel in verse 9. So this is six angels, just like we've seen uh, through most of these, most of the uh, places where we have a set of angels. It's usually six or seven angels and the son of man uh, right in the middle of them so that we have um, seven beings six of them are angels and one of them is the son of man this one comes as the herald of the grain harvest then we will have a herald of the grape harvest um, as well as another angel who will perform the grape harvest we'll get to that when we uh when we get to that in verse uh, 17 but notice uh, there are two different reapers one is the son of man the other is not the son of man but an angel That is uh, one of those reasons why I believe this is not talking about the same harvest. Some say that it's the same harvest, but the second one is amplifying the the action. Uh, First of all, I don't think you would amplify action by having the second one be an angel and the first one being God himself. Uh, That seems anticlimactic to me. Uh, But just the fact that we see different agents performing these operations, uh, is proof enough that they're not the same harvest. If the Son of Man performs one and a fifth angel performs another, and angel four hearkens in one and angel six hearkens in another, we don't have the same actors doing the same action. So the action can't be the same. Anyways, let's move on to this temple. What is the temple that this angel comes out of um, to say, uh, perform the harvest? Well, we look back to Revelation 11, 19, and we see a temple that is in heaven um, that is now opened. And if you remember, this is at the midpoint of the tribulation at the time where the Antichrist is incarnated by uh, where the Antichrist is incarnate by Satan himself, uh, where the Antichrist, the beast and the dragon rule over this earth in its final government form, uh, declaring themselves to be a god. Uh, presenting to the world a satanic trinity. Uh, Many of the world will be deceived by them. Okay, so this uh, temple in heaven, either right before the midpoint of the tribulation or right after, it says the temple of God, which is in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm.
2: So, this temple in heaven is the
1: pattern that Moses patterned the first tabernacle after, that the temple of Solomon was patterned after, that the temple of Herod was patterned after, and conceivably that the temple of the Antichrist will be patterned after. Finally, there will be yet another temple in the millennial kingdom, and this is detailed in pretty good detail uh, in. Uh, Ezekiel 40 to Ezekiel 48. um, That will be the millennial temple. Uh, But this is the temple that it is all modeled after. This is the originator. This is the source. um, This is the reality behind the image that we have on this earth. Actually, we don't presently have on this earth, but that we have had on this earth. So in Hebrews 8, 4 through 5, uh, we're told that Uh, the author writes, Now, if he were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, that is speaking of Jesus Christ, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, and we are no longer under the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And what was that? pattern that he was shown in exodus 25 8 through 9 it says let them construct a sanctuary for me that i may dwell among them according to all that i am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture just so you shall construct it so god was very specific about how moses must create this tabernacle this uh temple Even down to the furniture that was to go inside of it, because it all has uh, purpose, it all has function, it all has reason within this dwelling place of God. And that's what it was. It was a replica, but an earthly one, of the very dwelling place of God, so that God might dwell among his people. When he created Israel as a nation, its purpose was to be a microcosm of the kingdom, once again, a pattern of the kingdom. On this earth, so that Israel would perform the duties of a theocratic administrator, that God would have his operators on this earth, just like he had intended Adam to have dominion over the earth uh, and to dwell among him in the garden. So here we have God dwelling among his people in Israel uh, in the temple, uh, but they have to come to him uh, through faith.
2: All right. Now we have this question
1: of uh, the angel commanding the son of man to put his sickle into the earth. Why does the angel get to tell the son of man what to do?
2: Uh, this is uh, not a problem, actually, uh, if we look at it in its
1: context. Revelation fourteen 15. Uh, let's read this again. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe." Well, if you look carefully at this and uh, I will point out the language, the next time we have an angel commanding an angel, what to do, the language is different. This is not an imperative command. This is what we call an imprecatory command. Uh, If you've ever heard of the imprecatory Psalms, uh, it's a term that uh, you can't really intuit. You have to be told what it means. Uh, Essentially, this is a cry for victory. This is a cry for uh, justice to be brought. He is not demanding that the Son of Man do anything. He is alerting the Son of Man to the fact that it's time. The time has come. Uh, Do as you said you would do. Now. If you read uh, through the imprecatory psalms, often it's David um, crying out to the Lord, saying, "Keep your promise, bring vengeance on these people who have brought injustice on me." And we see in Revelation 6:9 through 10 that an imprecatory cry was made to the Lord, and here in Revelation 14:15, the Lord is being reminded of that cry. And he's being alerted to the fact that the time has indeed come. So in Revelation six nine through ten, we read the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, "How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" So in this angel comes out of the temple, out of the temple that those Martyrs were present in, he is crying out with the same cry that they have, where they say, How long, O Lord, this angel is coming and saying, It's time, the harvest is ripe. In Matthew 24, 36, uh, we see this as well, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So we not only get the information that Jesus Christ himself does not know the day or the hour, but we get to see the exact moment where he learns it's the day and it is the hour. Uh, So at this point, the Lord is now alerted to God's divine will, to God's timing. And Jesus always acts within God's will. When he was here on the earth, he would seek the Lord's will. He would seek God's will. He came only to do God's will. And so here he continues to operate only in God's will.
0: <clears throat>
1: so the cry
2: comes out from the angel saying, uh, the time is right.
1: It is right for the harvest. And this is precedented. We see uh, that the Lord has been very patient on this earth, that uh, sin has grown worse and worse. Uh, but he has been patient until the time was right uh, in genesis fifteen sixteen when God promises Abraham that he will have uh, land, he will have a continual seed, and then he will have a blessing from him. Uh, he also promises that he will be held captive in Egypt for four hundred years or for four
2: generations, and the purpose
1: was that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The Amorites lived in Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham, and their sins had not yet filled the cup of wrath. They had not yet come to a point where the uh, righteous warfare of Joshua had been merited. Uh, If you want to, uh, to see what exactly filled their cup, You could read Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19. Uh, This is the Lord commanding Israel not to do the same things that those who lived in the land land of Canaan had done that brought about their judgment. Um, All sorts of horrendous and horrific uh, activities that they were involved with. But the Lord was long-suffering. The Lord was patient with them, giving them an extra 400 years uh,
2: to... To uh, justify the judgment that came on them.
1: We see this uh, concept of the Lord's patience also in Genesis 6. Uh, Just prior to the flood, we see that the Lord sent them a prophet, Noah, and Noah preached for 120 years, telling them that judgment was coming, and no one listened to him. But that does not uh, nullify the fact that the Lord did give them 120 years
0: to repent and in matthew three twelve,
1: uh we see this uh this very scene uh foretold by uh this is john the baptist john the baptist looks forward prophetically and sees this day and this age this end of uh end of days and this is before or actually during the time that he is announcing that Jesus, the one who is coming after him, uh, will come to put away the sins of the world. In fact, that's John 1.29. He is the lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Well, here in Matthew 3.12, which is a different gospels recording of the same conversation, different uh, gospel authors had different purposes and so recorded different facts and different details uh, of the larger corpus. You could look at the, All of the things that the Lord said, and just pick out things within them uh, that are actually recorded in the gospel. So not all gospel writers record complete conversations. Um, So this was probably taken from the same conversation that John had with the Pharisees uh, before he revealed Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So in Matthew 3:12, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will gather thoroughly clear. His threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire so john is actually looking beyond his first advent into his second advent he sees the whole career of jesus
2: uh, in one uh, telescopic lens
1: in matthew 13 30 we see the lord himself predicting this final harvest He says, allow both to grow together, that is the wheat and the tares, until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn.
2: And lastly, we see that this judgment, this
1: threshing floor, uh, or this uh, final harvest judgment, uh, is it particularly in the context of Babylon. And when we get into chapters 16, 17, and 18, we will see that this is indeed the fall of Babylon. But Jeremiah 51, 33 reads, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time it is stamped firm. Yet in a little while, the time of harvest will come for her. So the Lord is coming to exercise judgment. He is coming to reap the wheat harvest. Uh, And those who are his will go into the kingdom and those who are not his will be burned uh, in the lake of
2: fire.